Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. And today we are all abuzz about bees and beekeeping. It's become a bit of a lockdown cliche that we have all noticed, got closer to and appreciated nature and the natural world around us. But as it's true, we thought it was time we talked about that small but vital insect, the honeybee, without which life on Earth would be nigh on impossible. To help me discuss all things bee, I'm joined by two beekeeping experts, Richard Rickett, co-editor of Beecraft, the UK's leading beekeeping magazine that's been in print for over 100 years now. Richard keeps about 30 colonies of his own and a few for other people. He runs beekeeping courses, but really enjoys meeting and learning from other beekeepers. And he is particularly interested in beekeeping history, books and photography. Richard, hello and welcome to Planet Pod. Hi, thanks for asking me. My second guest is a slightly more recent beekeeper, Kevin Bourne. Kevin gave up his successful career as a marketing and communications professional to live the dream. And with his wife, Amanda, he set up and runs 13 Bees, a socially and environmentally driven holiday business in southwest France, which aims to educate and inspire people to look after and even keep honeybees. They keep 12 colonies of bees in various types of hive, focusing on bee health and living more of a rural lifestyle in harmony with their surroundings. And he tells me they hardly ever get stung. Kevin, welcome to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us from France today. Good morning. Nice to be here. Kevin, I'm sure lots of us can see the appeal of chucking in the rat race and moving to a beautiful part of the world to live a more natural lifestyle. But why bees in particular rather than yoga or cookery or just a straight B&B? That's a, that's a good question. We'll, well, we thought there was a lack of bees for a start, so we needed bees, bees and bees for the business. But for us, it was about finding something that was sustainable at all sorts of levels. And I'm sure Richard will talk about the importance of, of honeybees to our macro environment. So there is sustainability with a capital S. But at a small level, beekeepers like us with, with a relative handful of hives live us a more sustainable life because our bees themselves through the money we earn in education and also from selling some of the products at a small scale that our bees provide, like beeswax and honey, it sustains our family. So it's sustainable right the way through a spectrum from macroeconomics right down to a family level. Secondly, personally, we find them quite a zen pastime. And someone told me years ago, if you could find a job that you loved, you'd never work another day in your life. And that seems to be the case for us. Spending time with our time-stealing bees is a great way to pass our time. And now we get to spend our time sharing our passion and, and the knowledge we have about these fascinating little creatures and inspiring others. And it is great to see the 250 plus people that have come through our doors in the years we've been doing this leave with literally a buzz and smiling and wanting to do everything from planting something different in their garden to help right the way up to wanting to learn more and satiate their knowledge and keep their own bees. So for us, it is a very rewarding way to pay our bills personally uh, and also because we're positively contributing to the local environment. We have neighbours here who are all keen gardeners 
who will love the fact that we moved in and put hives on our land because as a result their potagers their their small allotments and their fruit trees and their flower beds are all fantastic as a result of us having the hives and the bees here make it sound absolutely idyllic but i'm um, is it very popular in france i mean we know that beekeeping is hugely popular in the uk i mean perhaps less so than it was 100 years ago but but a very much a sort of an, an, um, a pastime that people are interested in do you get a lot of french visitors coming and a lot of french people wanting to learn to keep bees that's an interesting question in fact it's two questions so do we get a lot of french people coming yes but are they interested in keeping bees not necessarily in the same way uh, that British beekeepers might be. There are some European Commission statistics which back up the fact that beekeeping is seen as more of uh, a job in France, shall we say, than a pastime. Um, and if you look at a report from 2020, it shows that the average beekeeper in the UK keeps about six hives. In France, it's 27. So it's more like an industrial pastime or a, or a, well, a proper formal business rather than a, than yeah. a hobby. But, but more at the small holding level. Okay. Because yeah. there are um, over a million and a half hives kept in France. And if you think that average is out at about 27 each, then that means some are keeping three and four, but there are some big commercial honey producers at the other end who are keeping several hundreds, if not a thousand plus hives. So the French are curious and they do like to come on our meet the bees afternoons, but don't really culturally see certainly if they come from the cities and larger towns, why you would want to pay to learn a pastime that's something that farmers do. Richard, is that the case in the UK? I mean, I made that rather sweeping statement about beekeeping, you know, being very popular. Is it, is it on the rise in the UK? Have we got a lot of, of um, amateur, in inverted commas, beekeepers, people keeping hives in their back gardens? Yes, we have a very strong tradition, in fact, in the UK of beekeeping being a, uh, a hobby, um, very much of the middle classes and, and the rich. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but beekeeping as a hobby uh, suffered a massive decline in about the mid-1990s. You've probably heard of Varroa, the horrible parasitic mite, which causes us all problems. Um, that caused a huge decline in the numbers of bees and the number of beekeepers. People just couldn't be bothered, really, to spend their time fighting this nasty bug. Uh, so numbers of beekeepers collapsed. Um, and they've been on the rise uh, in about the last 15 years. So at a low, I think they went down to possibly only 8,000 people in the UK keeping bees in the mid-90s. We're up now to probably around about 40,000 beekeepers, of which five or 600 are the professional type, the commercial beekeepers that Kevin was just talking about, and the rest are the amateur beekeepers who have just a few hives in their back, back garden. And we're very much... Uh, bee fiddlers, as some people <laughs> call us, people who are fascinated by these creatures and love to spend their time working out really what makes them tick, why are they doing, what are they, what they're doing, and what can we best do to, to help them and keep them successfully and healthily. That's possibly a change though, isn't it? Because I would have thought traditionally, maybe 100, 150 years ago, if you lived in the country, you probably would keep bees, wouldn't you? Because if you had any kind yeah. of a small holding or a plot or a big garden, you knew the bees were vital and they were there in your immediate environs. I mean, my grandfather kept bees for example yes. and you know just because everybody it was, did it, 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 beekeeping say mid-1800s it was very much a, a game of two halves you had what were called cottages so that perhaps might be someone like your grandfather who uh, lived in a, a small cottage in the countryside and you did a few bits and pieces to um, boost your income and that might be keeping chickens you might have a house cow and inevitably you'd have a few um, 
hives or skeps of bees. And back then, bees were um, uh, really a wild creature, and you could harvest them each spring when they swarmed from the trees in which they lived. You could keep them in a skep over the summer. Uh, at the end of the summer, you would in fact kill those bees in order to harvest the honey, and the equipment would go back in the shed, and you could just harvest more, like any other natural resource, from the, um, from the hedge the following spring. Um, but along came a very devastating disease called Isle of, Isle of Wight disease, which killed nearly all of our um, uh, wild bees. Um, and that's when people learned to become beekeepers. Bees suddenly were a valuable livestock item, and we learned how to keep them in boxes to keep them alive throughout the winter, to harvest the honey uh, in a way that wasn't detrimental to the to the colony and didn't involve killing them. So those are the, those are the cottages. And the other part of your question uh, is about the, um, or which I mentioned earlier, was the the more upper class, the gentleman beekeepers. And these are people who took it very seriously. They looked upon it as a science. They were interested in the equipment. They were interested in, uh, in designing new types of hives and and so forth. And many of those. Um, wrote books. The books that we often look back on now as um, the standard texts come from um, that period where were the gentleman beekeepers uh, who weren't doing it in any way to supplement their income um, just because it was a hobby. And it was a, it was a very big hobby. If you look at the um, uh, catalogues of things like the Great Exhibition, you'll find lots of examples of beekeeping equipment. And even Oxford Street had a very large beekeeping store on it at one point, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> it's got a mid-19th century talking here, late 19th century rather than... That's right, that's recently. right. And for some reason, a great many of the uh, what became famous beekeepers and our beekeeping writers were men of the cloth, vicars. I think they had the, had the time to potter with their bees. That's the way with a lot of nature writing, though, isn't it? There's a lot of very famous um, naturalists who were also vicars, that's as you right. say. They had a little bit more time on their hands than perhaps our yeah, modern vicars right. do. Gil, so if there's Gil. any beekeeping vicars out there, we'd like to hear from you. Um, can I just ask you about why bees are so important? Because, I mean, I think we all have this residual affection for them because, you know, they're part of our, our, our cultural and natural landscape and our heritage. But why are they so important in terms of the ecosystems and biodiversity? I mean, what would happen if we didn't have any bees? Bees are essential for any plant that needs pollinating. And from a human perspective, that means a vast majority of what we eat. In fact, it's really all the exciting stuff. So we can get away, get away with uh, grasses and grains uh, without needing bees to help pollinate them. But anything interesting like nuts and fruit and most vegetables, uh, we need bees uh, to pollinate them and make that, put that food um, on our plate. Um, and the problem is, of course, these days, most agriculture is done on a vast scale and there quite simply aren't the pollinators there uh, to service those industries. One of the reasons being that that vast scale of agriculture um, has in some ways degraded the environments. There are lots of chemicals used to treat those crops, uh, hedgerows are being ripped out and so forth, so pollinators really are, are struggling. Now the thing about honeybees is that one small hive of honeybees may well have 50, 60, 70, 80,000 bees in it, whereas a uh, nest of bumblebees may have three or four hundred and then you have the solitary bees of which in the UK there are around at least 225 species they are vastly important as pollinators and indeed wasps uh, but there just aren't the numbers that are needed for this industrial scale of food production. So we need far more beekeepers and far more bees and they have an economic value don't they Kevin because you were talking before we came on air about some recent stats that's showing that actually you can quantify the value of bees to the landscape Financially speaking, yes, it's it, it's quantifiable in terms of the pollination and also the products that are produced by a colony of honeybees. So in 2020, the European Commission released a report on 
uh, honeybees and those products. And they estimate that across the EU, at least 22 billion euros a year are contributed by pollinating insects to the agricultural industry. And that's because, as Richard iterated earlier on, that they, they do so much hard work around keeping our crops and our plants sustainable and sustained. Of that 22 billion, 650 million just come from the products created within a beehive. So beeswax, propolis, and honey. Now, the majority of that is honey. And to put that into context, the EU produces the thick end of 285,000 tonnes of honey a year. Um, and if that's not mind-boggling enough, we actually consume closer to 500,000 tonnes. So the, the statistic is that we actually import the vast majority of that outside of the EU because it is cheaper, um, typical mixed flower honey. And we tend to import the more expensive single varietal honeys. Uh, it was interesting to note from that report that the most expensive place to buy honey in the EU is the UK. Mm. And whether that's because you have a view on commercialism and profiteering, etc. That's that's one question, but there is also a contribution in there that the UK has quite a, a sophisticated palate for honey. So the kinds of honey that the UK consumer likes seem to be, according to this EU report, the rarer, the scarcer, the more expensive varieties of honey from New Zealand. The manuka honey is the one that most people might know. So it has special sort of healing properties, isn't it, manuka honey? It is. It is. Some of some of which are easier to prove than others. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those mid things. You just mentioned a word which I wasn't familiar with. What's a propolis? What's propolis? Yeah. Pro propolis is, uh, in layman's terms, it is a substance that the honeybees make by mixing water and resin, sap, from various trees. And they turn it into, effectively, a health-promoting antibacterial mastic that they use to seal up the gaps in the home that they live in now whether that home is a is a tree we have lots of wild bee colonies still here in france so woodpecker attacks the tree there's a hole in an unwanted place they use propolis to fill those holes in a beehive they'll use it to seal the various boxes the various layers of a beehive together and it's why when a beekeeper comes to open a hive they'll typically have to use a tool like a hive tool which is specifically designed to crack open or to prise open the various parts because they will have used propolis to stick those parts together the theory being that the antibacterial nature and the vapors from the propolis are fanned around the inside of the colony the entire time by the bees moving around. And why is that helpful? I mean, why would you harvest that as a product for, for like honey or beeswax for, for human use? It has um, homeopathic properties oh, to it. So you, okay. you can go into homeopathic health food shops online and you can buy propolis okay. tincture. Uh, you can buy um, tablets made with propolis for those general health encouraging benefits. But this is not just uh, an airy fairy idea that this might possibly be something natural, which is good for us. Uh, there's a lot of scientific research into propolis and it is used in a lot of modern medicine. It's used in some forms of surgery. It can be used to combat gum disease. It can help with arthritis, even hair loss. There are thousands of scientific studies into this amazing uh, amazing stuff uh, and I would uh, I'd advise anybody to have a look at it and um, see what it can do for them. 
So, I mean, bees are so extraordinary, aren't they? I mean, they are just probably one of the most giving of all insects. Are they resentful when you go in and, and scoop out all the honey? I mean, how does that, I mean, I, obviously, you know, psychology of bees is a complicated com- question, but I mean, how, because there probably is a myth around that says, you know, you poor old bees, they work really hard and then we steal all the products of their of their industry. I mean, it, it, what impact does, does, does taking honeycomb out of the hive have? And, and does that have a, de- and obviously doesn't have a detrimental impact. So how do you manage that? Because it must be quite a tricky balance. If you're a thoughtful and careful and wise beekeeper, you'll only ever take uh, from the bees what they can spare. So the thing about bees is that they collect nectar and convert it into honey, and that's their, that's their stores for winter. Um, and there's a certain amount that will sustain a colony uh, throughout the winter and give them everything they need. But beyond that, they will continue gathering honey and storing it just because they can. Now, in a typical, for example, hollow tree, if if a colony of bees lives in there, they will fill that space up with honey as winter approaches and then reach a halt when they fill the space. And they've moved into a space that they know will hold enough honey to sustain them through the winter. Now, as beekeepers, we'll keep bees in a wooden box. We give them that space. If we're lucky with the weather, they'll fill that space up with honey. And then they sit around wondering, what do we do next? Well, what we do is we give them another box and then they're all very happy workers because they can begin working. It's what they want to do. It's what they're genetically programmed to do. And off they go and bring in more nectar and honey. And they will fill up those extra boxes if we're lucky. And then we don't feel too bad about taking that away. As long as we know that in that original box, there's still going to be enough honey to see them through the winter. So we're actually being quite kind because we're keeping them employed. We're giving them the job to do. And I can tell you, if, if you have a, a hive and it's filled itself with honey and there's no more space, and yet the bees still have the opportunity to go and get more honey, they can get quite frustrated and feisty and you then have unhappy bees. No one so wants get, an unhappy bee. <laughs> nobody, no, I, believe me, you do not want an unhappy bee. So um, taking the, the honey from the bees is not detrimental. There's no problem at all with it as long as you are being careful and thoughtful, doing it at the right time and only taking the right quantity. So Richard, how did you get into beekeeping? Because it's clearly a passion as well as a, a as well as a, a profession for you. I mean, what what sparked your interest as a as a beekeeper? Yeah, I think it started when I was. Um, uh, <laughs> my mother, my, I grew up on a small holding, and we used to go around to other people's small holdings and look at their their. Um, various animals and I remember on one occasion we were at somebody's uh, small holding and they were they were goat keepers and everyone was looking at the goats I suppose I was 12 or 13 and I was a little bit bored with what the grown-ups were talking about so I went for a wander around the garden and I saw a beehive and I thought well that's interesting I wonder what's inside and I lifted off the lid very foolishly and discovered exactly what was inside Uh, and five minutes later having run several hundred yards (laughs) (laughs) I decided I didn't like bees very much but I think it, it 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 kindled an interest and a fascination. So I went to school. Luckily, we had a beekeeping club, which I um, joined for a very short time. And then, of course, I left school, went to university, did the job, all that sort of stuff. And then we moved out to the countryside and um, uh, and I did the usual thing of planting vegetables and keeping chickens. But I kept talking about bees. And then one day on my birthday, very foolishly and unwisely, my wife gave me the present of a place on a beekeeping course and has regretted it ever since. Um, like like sure many, she doesn't I, no I, I now teach beekeeping in fact I teach the same course that I originally went on and you were talking about it being a passion and for many beekeepers it truly is a passion on the first evening of any beekeeping course may, when I may have say 20 people in front of me at the end of the evening I know that there are going to be four or five people who think 
what the heck have I taken on? This is too much. I really didn't realize all this was involved and you don't see them again. And then there are three or four people who sit there with this gleam in their eyes as if they've struck gold. The most fascinating thing has just been discovered. And the next week they come, they've bought all the books. They've read half of them already. It's just such an extraordinary, engrossing, fascinating pastime. And the thing about bees is you just never get to the bottom of them. Bees are just such fascinating creatures. Just taking a, take one example is looking at a bee up close. If you ever get the chance, one of the niches of beekeeping is microscopy. That's looking at bees through microscopes. And I'm afraid to say some of them do, in fact, get cut up so that we can look at them even closer. But just the outside of a bee, you've got two big eyes. We're all familiar with those big eyes on the front of an insect. Well, a bee, in fact, has five eyes. There are three more on the top. The big eyes have up to 5,000 lenses on each one. Uh, and the small ones on the top are used for um, detecting levels of light, ultraviolet and polarised light. Um, you then have the legs. They're so extraordinarily engineered for what they're there to do, which is to collect pollen. Uh, a bee is covered with hairs and each hair is plumose. It looks like a feather if you look at it under the microscope. That's designed to attract pollen. And the legs of the bee are like uh, hair combs. They comb their hair and, and take the pollen off the hair onto the front legs. They then use the combs to transfer the pollen from the front legs to the middle legs. They'll add a drop of nectar to make the pollen stick together. And then they'll scrape it all onto their very large flat back legs where you get those big blobs of pollen which gardeners will be familiar with. Um, staying at the back of the bee, underneath, uh, a bee is covered with scales and underneath those scales there are a set of glands which produce the wax and you can actually see the wax being squirted out onto these um, plates where it sets and goes hard to form flakes and the other bees will come along and pluck out those flakes of wax and chew them up and model them into the into the honeycomb that we're all familiar with. Um, so absolutely I mean that's just the start of it I could be here for, for several hours just describing the exterior anatomy of a honeybee and how fascinating it is and how brilliantly designed everything is to do a job perfectly. Oh, what a wonderful idea. But, but you talked a little bit about um, bees and the environment and the, the impact of industrial scale agriculture, but there's some other kind of significant threats to our bee population, aren't there? And, and they're so vital to our food chain. What are those threats? And, and is there something that we can do about them? I mean, I guess most people will have heard about the Asian hornet, but, but there are other threats as well, aren't there? Yes, yeah, so there, there are broad environmental threats. So those are uh, agrochemicals, which um, are, can potentially be um, devastating. Uh, there's just the sheer lack of forage. Since the Second World War, we've pulled up over 150,000 miles of hedgerows in the UK. 97% of our wildflower meadows have been lost. Every spring, our, hedgerow, our, our, our roadsides are covered with dandelions just as they're the best and the bees are taking advantage of them at a time when they really need all that pollen, the uh, councils come along and cut the grass. Um, so you're asking what can we do to help? Well, keeping bees can help, but many people aren't in a position to do that and they don't have the time or the money necessarily. What most people can do is plant flowers that are suitable for pollinators. And when I'm talking about pollinators, I'm not just talking about honeybees, I'm talking about those um, solitary bees and bumblebees I mentioned earlier, and indeed wasps. We have about 2,000 varieties of wasp in the UK. They're not all the yellow and black ones that chase you uh, when you've got a jam sandwich. Um, there are many very, uh, very subtle wasps that most of us don't even notice who go about the pollination business. The other thing that you can do to help bees is to buy local honey from your local beekeeper. Um, our bees go out there and pollinate the crops that are grown by the local farmers. Farmers 
receive quite heavy subsidies, for better or worse, from the government to grow those crops, but beekeepers don't receive any subsidies for pollinating those crops. And we're not really asking for any governmental help, um, but one of the byproducts of, of a successful beekeeping hobby, uh, which isn't cheap, uh, is, is honey. So if you have a local beekeeper, and most people do, find them and buy their honey from them, and that will help them to keep their bees successfully. It helps our health as well won't it because people do say that if you suffer from asthma or any pollinated related disease actually eating local honey helps you to to build up your defenses against that because it's you know because it's the natural pollination in your in your but i don't know if that's true is that another myth? Oh, well this is a difficult one there is no scientific evidence and it really doesn't make any sense if you think about it um however when i started keeping bees people of course started buying my honey and saying i'm going to have this for my uh, for my asthma uh, or my eczema and I'd say well you know there's not really uh, any evidence uh, for that nevertheless they would come back sometime later saying oh, your honey has done wonders and I've even had grandparents who've given it to their children who of course don't have all these expectations of what it's going to do for their health and they've said in fact it has helped them so uh, probably like a lot of um, homeopathic remedies uh, it may not really make sense but for some reason it seems to work. Well, there we are, you see, that's the purity of honey, been through nothing but the bee. Um, Kevin, can I ask you about the Asian hornet? Because it is a real problem in France and it's migrating over here to the UK as well. I mean, what does it do and how can you tackle it? And is there a natural way of tackling or are we talking about aggressive chemicals to get rid of it? Uh, there are lots of questions in there. Um, the first is, yes, the Asiatic hornet is prevalent in France. It is believed that it arrived sometime in 2004 into the port of Bordeaux on a container from a ship that was carrying porcelain from China. Two queens allegedly arrived, just two. Fast forward to 2020, and the Asian hornet is now present as an invasive species in every département in France, so the entire country. Now, it gives us a couple of key issues. The first is that it's a carnivore, and where it's from in Asia, its prey have evolved over tens of millions of years alongside this apex predator. So they have defenses. And the Asian hornet also has other food source choices. Here in France, it seems to have arrived and realized that these boxes we keep bees in are little more than an easy buffet, an all-you-can-eat source for protein. And they are fast and they're strong and their venom packs quite a wallop if, if you're ever stung by one. So they're not an animal that's easy to get rid of or to control once they establish a nest. So the issue for the beekeeper is that one Asian hornet, one adult hornet can eat or at least kill 50 honeybees a day, which it would then, they basically decapitate them having captured them on the wing. They hover like helicopters in front of a hive, take the carcass of that bee back to uh, the hive eat the contents and then regurgitate to feed the hornet larvae. So one adult can eat 50 honeybees a day and a mature nest contain up to 5,000 adult hornets. So then it's just about maths. 5,000 potential adult predators at 50 honeybees a day at full tilt can wipe out even a healthy colony in about nine days. So what can you do? Well, there are a couple of philosophies abound here one is if you imagine it as a, as a spectrum one is at the darwinist let nature take care of it end 
and the honeybees that, that are native to Europe will develop a defense in the same way they have in Asia. That's probably true, but nature being what it is, it's going to take a period of time. We'll measure in centuries if we're lucky. As a beekeeper, there's another philosophy that says we can't sit down and watch how our, our colonies get decimated by this thing. So what can we do to intervene? And that's where, where we are. Um, and understanding a little bit about the Asian hornet's life cycle is key. And, and that's to be fair, where UK beekeepers are miles ahead of where we are in France. France just accepted their arrival and thought that nature would sort it out. Whereas in the UK, uh, beekeepers are working together very proactively to be a, a step ahead of the game. So trying to prevent the queens that overwinter on their own mating uh, they've already mated so they overwinter as fertile and then they start to feed themselves up in the spring once they get stronger that process of nest building and egg laying starts so it's trying to break that cycle so trapping and dispatching i i i, I hate to say because we'd rather not but a queen during the spring will actually prevent a 5,000 strong nest being developed come late july and into august and so there is a, a, a program of trapping that goes on in the spring. And then there is also a program of trapping with different types of bait during the spring and the summer because the adult hornets are after protein at that point. So you, you're just changing the bait. Uh, I wish there were a more humane way, freely and readily available to deal with this invasive species. But you know, it's, it's reportable. If you see a nest here in France, it has to be reported. And the, the state will destroy it. And then the chemicals they use to do that, yes, are absolutely noxious. Very, very quick. They contain a substance called promethrin, more often than not, which is banned in several countries. And, it, and, and, it's, and it's done by an exterminator wearing the kind of breathing apparatus you would normally associate with firefighters. Sounds pretty serious stuff. Is that the case in the UK, Richard? Have we got the same Asian hornet problem? Um, no, we don't yet. Uh, it's a big problem in Jersey. Uh, and for the last, um, I think, three years, there have been um, confirmed sightings of Asian hornets. The first one, in fact, was in Tetbury, very near to me. And if they're found uh, and they're reported, they're dealt with. We haven't yet had a, had a confirmed sighting this year, but we're very much approaching now the period we're in, um, in mid-July now, the period when we are likely to start seeing them if they are here. At the moment, we think the few that have been spotted, hopefully, were probably one-offs. They perhaps came over with a holidaymaker returning from France, hitching a lift in their caravan or what have you. So as far as we know, they're not, they're not yet established. So we're still at the stage of trying to find them and trying to destroy them when we do to prevent them. Unfortunately, what do they many... look like? How would we know what they look like? I mean, so they're, they, they're, they're not as big as people think. Oh. So they are a good name for them is the yellow-legged hornet. To remember those yellow legs so they are smallish bigger than a, a, a normal uh, a normal wasp considerably smaller than a european hornet people often see european hornets and think oh, that's a big thing it must be one of these asian hornets so they're smaller than that uh, they have very black uh, abdomens that's the the rear part of the body dark with uh, yellow markings and sort of orangey markings i mean kevin's seen them all the time he's probably much better at giving you a description uh, uh orangey towards the front and uh, with the quite strikingly yellow legs that's that, that's absolutely right it's spot on richard they then it's why they're called the yellow legged hornet they are easy to see they are smaller than the indigenous european hornet which has a black and yellow abdomen 
the face is quite often bright orange. If you get one, they will, they will, the, the behavior is called hawking. And it just basically means that they can hover stationary like a helicopter and they will look at you. And when they look at you face on, the face is quite often bright orange. It's a face from a science fiction monster movie. Um, obviously, once you look at it, uh, once it's zoomed in, but it is difficult from an environmental perspective not to admire it. Mm. It is very tough. It adapts very quickly. A whole raft of traps and inventions to prevent the hornets from accessing the beehive. So rather than kill the hornet, just try to make it harder for them to access the bees in the hive, have been invented and tested here over the last 10 years. And to give you an example of how slow Darwinism is in certain insects as opposed to apex predators, it took our honeybees about six months to learn how to navigate uh, a screen that we put in front of the hive to deter the hornets. It took the hornets less than a fortnight to work out the problems the bees were having in working it out. And so they just hung around the parts of the screen that they knew the bees were stopping to have a think. Oh, poor bees. But you're quite a non-invasive beekeeper, aren't you? You're very much on the sort of organic, sustainable, non-intervention, non-chemical type of beekeeping. Is that unusual in in the beekeeping world? Because I know you've just said you'd rather not kill the hornets, though I'm not sure I'd be as generous as that if I were you. But (laughs) Well, it's a a needs-must thing for the hornets. And I Mm. think that if if we were to encapsulate and articulate our philosophy in in one short phrase, it would be needs-must. So we we intervene when all evidence tells us that the bees need our help to intervene. But to your first question, is it, is it rare? We, we know as many beekeepers here who keep bees at our level that share our philosophy. So it's, it's quite mixed at the hobbyist, semi-professional end. When you move to commercial beekeepers, and most, most commercial beekeepers are doing it for the honey mm. because that's the most valuable gram for gram uh, product that they can get out at volume. The concern is, is more of a commercial one than a care one. And, and whilst I don't want to imply that commercial honey producers are, are cruel to colonies, that's because I have no evidence to back that up. What they don't have is the time to spend and to deliberate and to work out innovations to deal with some of these problems uh, that a hobbyist has. They don't have the luxury of that time. So therefore, they will tend to be a greater use of chemical treatments mm. of of sledgehammers to crack walnuts rather than specifically tailored solutions to problems i think that's about as politically well <laughs> as i can put it very tactful um bee- beekeeping isn't just confined to the countryside though is it there's been a rise in recent years of, of urban beekeeping and particularly you know large organizations that are seeking to do something slightly more environmental with their rooftops and their buildings have been putting hives up Richard is that actually useful I mean is it important to have bees in the heart of a city I think it's important from the point of view of of education of making people who live in cities aware uh, of these fascinating forms of life it doesn't really help the bees if you really want to help the bees rather than putting hives on your roof you'd put a lot of flowering plants on your roof Cities do abound with parks, particularly in the UK. We're lucky we have some very green cities. I'm thinking of London. And there are many, many trees. And trees are are very important uh, sources of forage for bees. 
But generally speaking, uh, I think London in particular has an overpopulation of beehives and just not enough forage. So if you want to help the bees, and this goes even if you live in the countryside, if you really want to help the bees, don't keep bees, plant for bees. But you would like some people to keep bees, obviously. Some of us should take up beekeeping because obviously we need we need more beekeepers and we need more bees. So, uh, And we don't want to put you guys out of work either <laughs> as beekeeping course runners. So, I mean, and obviously if people are going to keep bees, they really should get some professional training. It's not something you shouldn't just go out and buy a hive, should you? You really need support and expertise to help you on that journey, don't you? When people ask us the question... Clearly, it's a slightly loaded question because they think we have a vested interest in promoting the training and the courses. And of course we do. But our, our answer comes from our working with local farmers to, to, to site hives in various places to help their pollination. And that is that keeping bees tends more to husbandry than it does keeping domestic pets. And so we tend to answer a question with a question. Say, so would you buy a herd of 200 cows and not have the first clue how to look after them? And some gung-ho people would say, yeah, fine, I'll give it a go. Uh, but most people would say, actually, no, that's, that's not what I would do. So we tend to recommend that however you choose to do it, if you want to keep bees, do yourself and them a favour and learn how to do it well and develop some contacts. And those courses that Richard runs are, are a cracking example of where groups of people actually form a support network right from day one. And they mm. can help each other. Beekeeping, in our experience, the 10 plus years we've been doing it, is a very low ego industry and indeed pastime. We have found an unlimited number of people who are prepared to share the mistakes they've made when they tried something and it went horribly wrong, when they tried something and it went really, really well, just to share for the benefit of bees and beekeepers, which is wonderful. And obviously there are two, at least two fabulous courses that we can recommend to pod listeners. And we'll put details of, of your courses, Richard, and of 13 bees on our website. We should really wrap it up. We could talk about bees all day, I think. But I have to ask you, you mentioned right at the beginning, Richard, about the old-fashioned way of keeping bees where you caught a swarm and kind of pet it in a box. Mm. What is a swarm and, and is it really dangerous and frightening? Because it sounds as if it might be quite scary. Uh, yes, okay. So bees reproduce on two levels. They reproduce on an individual level, by which I mean a queen lays an egg and that egg leads to a new bee. But after a period of laying two or possibly even 3,000 eggs a day, you can imagine that a colony of bees gets pretty big. And they're going to outgrow their space. And if they are successful, they're going to think to themselves, how can we increase our chances of survival? And what we will do is we will split our colony. So the old queen will leave with approximately half of that colony, leaving behind a new queen. So what leaves is the swarm. And all they are wanting to do is to find somewhere new to live. Uh, so they will fly usually, say, 20 metres from the hive, hang themselves on a tree, and that's when you'll get that classic bunch of, of bees that you often see in photographs, like a, like a uh, bunch of grapes hanging from a tree. As a beekeeper, that's the best time to catch them. It's very easy to get them into a box or some other container and then transfer them to a hive. While they're there, though, they will be sending scouts out into the surrounding countryside uh, or into the town, and they will be searching out for potential new nest sites. So they'll be going into any cavity, into a chimney, into a post uh, box um, into a shed to try and find somewhere suitable to live and if they find somewhere and it's a democratic decision when the whole swarm decides that's a suitable place they will fly to it the other part of your question was is it dangerous not at all the last thing a colony bee a swarm wants to do 
is to sting you because every one of those bees is vital to the future survival of that colony. Before leaving the hive, they filled themselves up with honey so that they've got something to eat and something with which to make wax because as soon as they find a new home, they've got to start building wax so there's somewhere for the queen to lay eggs and get that colony up and running. So bees are very, very unlikely to sting you if they're in a swarm. My advice is to just enjoy watching a swarm. We've all seen cartoons of being chased, people being chased down the street. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. If you've seen a swarm, I compare it to standing in the middle of a thunderstorm. It's one of the great thrills in nature that we can still experience. You can stand there, you can enjoy the, the thrill of the sound, the sight of it. It's very exciting. It's also quite scary. We know it's something we don't really, we can't control. Uh, but it's very unlikely to be very dangerous. If you're sitting or standing somewhere and a swarm goes past, stay where you are and just enjoy the experience. Oh, it makes me want to see one. Thank you. That's a fantastic insight. And thank you both for sharing your kind of clear passion and love of bees and your knowledge and expertise. And, and you know, there's so much that we non-beekeepers can do from planting the right plants in our garden to just not disturbing the natural world. And let's hope that one of the kind of upsides of lockdown is that those local councils are not cutting the verges in quite the way that they were, partly because they haven't got the time or the money. And that element of small element of rewilding, which we talk about on the pod all the time, will help help to improve um, conditions for our for our bees. So a huge thank you to my guests, um, to Richard Ricketts and Kevin Bourne. And, for, and also I know for the sound effects that you've provided, Kevin, which are actually people in your beekeeping cause and your bees. So a big thank you to your bees, um, though they're, they're not actually in the studio with us. Um, you can find out more about 13 Bees by checking our website, theplanetpod.com, where you can download other episodes of the podcast. And better still, subscribe. And if you do listen via an app, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Huge thank you to my guests, Richard and Kevin. Thanks for joining us. Um, and a, of course, thank you to Jim, our amazing Planet Pod producer, and to all you, our listeners. We're taking a short break over the summer, but we are delighted to say that we'll be releasing a series of special Planet Pod interviews with the shortlisted authors from this year's Wainwright Prize for Nature Writing and Global Conservation. The winner of both categories of prize will be announced at the end of August. And throughout the month, you can catch short one-to-one -one interviews with some of those shortlisted authors. So listen out for those. In the meantime, have a wonderful relaxing summer wherever you find yourself you won't be far from a bee take care and goodbye we don't want too much because what they're doing is going and eating all that okay. nice vanilla okay yeah squishy Yeah, so we're close, we're close at the super, but what we want to do is have a look at the roof box mm -hmm. and see what's going on down there. So it's it's quite good that you can put the crown board on top of that and then we'll lift the super off and just have a look at Can I ask how how you guys feel surrounded by bees so far? Not, Cloud of bees? Not at all worried at all. I'm not pleased at all. Put it this way, I've never had this one. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not... Um, I'm not, I'm finding it relaxing. That's Doesn't sound silly yeah, at all. Just, I didn't, I'm surprised at how I feel. Yeah, me too. Are you? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I see them all very much in my periphery here. Yes. <laughs> um, but I'm not concerned about them. Okay. I mean, they're around me. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, 
and our researcher Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.